Good morning. This is our 13th lesson in the study of the Thessalonian epistles. If you'll notice on the screen, I think it'll be there. It is just a enlarged picture of this book by uh, James Sire that's entitled uh, Scripture Twisting, 20 Ways That the Cults Misread the Bible. And uh, he... Uh, at the in the preface of his book, he talks about the uh, Swami. Uh, I, I actually had the pronunciation down, and I'll probably really miss it now. Uh, Satchitananda, head of the Integral Yoga Institute, he's addressing a capacity crowd at the Masonic Auditorium in San Francisco. Blessed are the pure in heart, Jesus said, for they shall see God. Quoted the Swami. And moments later, he explained these words something like this. Yes, blessed are those who purify their consciousness, for they shall see themselves as God. And then he goes on. I won't bother to give the other examples that I mentioned on the screen of other people that would be called uh, cultists who have done amazing things with the Word of God to take simple statements and make them mean something very, very different. I think you can see that our text is about Scripture twisting. That is, Paul has written to the Thessalonians, and as you know, virtually every chapter has a reference to the second coming of our Lord. The first epistle has about eight references in total to the coming of our Lord Jesus. So it is a prominent theme in his epistles. And when we come to 2 Thessalonians, it's obvious that somebody has been twisting those scriptures to make them mean something other than what Paul meant by what he said. And so we're going to be looking at Paul's correction of those who twist the scriptures. Now, I made reference to the fact that cultists abuse the Bible, but let us not confuse ourselves that they alone are capable of distorting the Scriptures. Uh, many who profess to know the Lord Jesus Christ uh, can play fast and loose. For example, think of the things in the Bible that are condemned as sin today, but in many churches are condoned, in fact, may even be praised as though they are somehow virtuous. Many of the clear statements of the Bible uh, and commands of the Bible are somehow set aside by some fancy footwork that's done in dealing with the scriptures. The, the sort of, uh, senior level or academic level of, of Jim Sire's book is a book by D.A. Carson. And it's called Exegetical Fallacies. Carson is a scholar and he looks at the way evangelical scholars have dealt with particular passages of Scripture in a way that were flawed. The thing I like most about his book is one of his chapters is himself. And he show, he points to an instance in his own preaching where he has mishandled a text and now he confesses it and says, here's what I did wrong. The reality is all of us are going to mishandle the scriptures in some way and often because of a bias or whatever that we bring to it. So it's important for us to learn how to deal with the scriptures rightly. And I think our text uh, does that and helps us along the way. 
So let's look at this uh, word of warning from Paul in verses uh, 1 and 2 of chapter 2. And I have to, I'm going to read my, when I say my translation, it's not mine, it's mine picking through the translations and taking all the things out I didn't like and putting something else that I did in. So it's kind of a potpourri of translations. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly. A lot of translations render that easily. I don't think that's quite the sense. And it's frankly not the use of that word very often at all, if at all. Don't be quickly upset in mind. Uh, NASB says, lose your composure. I like the word mind here. That's what Paul used, and I think that's what he's saying, is don't lose your head over this, especially as it relates to what you have learned, the doctrines that have been taught, either by spirit or message or by letter, as if from us, alleging that the day of the Lord has come. Notice that that I think this is a word of warning about something that is on its way to Thessalonica. He does not name specific individuals. He doesn't name a particular source, and we'll see that in a minute. He talks about ways in which that could be dealt with. And he uses the word ask, which you have to say is a rather weakened form. It's not implore. I think the King James Version, Old King James says, beseech. That's really stronger than than the word itself conveys. So I sense that Paul, uh, if he's in Corinth and he's writing this, he knows which way the theological winds are blowing. And therefore, he knows this error will come to Thessalonica. In my opinion, it has not yet come. It may be an academic matter, But it seems to me that best explains the language that Paul uses and the things he does not say. So it's rather a generic warning. No specific individual's name, no specific source of authority is identified, but more generally so. And so it looks to me like what you're dealing with is a movement, that is, a kind of theological wind. Think, for example, in our recent past, hopefully it's past, but the whole open theology uh, movement where God could know the future, they say, but he's chosen not to know it. Now, you could find a particular uh, individual like Greg Boyd or whatever, and you could pick on that, but the reality is you'll hear it in a lot of places. And so it seems like what Paul is doing is saying, here's kind of a new wave. Uh, By the way, another uh, would be the emergent church movement. There are, there are lots of people out there. What Paul is doing is addressing it generically because it may come from different people. It may come in slightly different forms, but the reality is this is the problem. This is the doctrinal deviation that needs to be addressed. It appears to me that it is not a direct assault on Paul. Now, there are times where Paul's apostolic authority is challenged. Remember 2 Corinthians chapter 11 Paul has had to say, these people purport to be apostles of our Lord. They claim to have apostolic authority and speak, in a sense, independently. Paul says uh, here that that the, uh, the inference we get from his words is they are not directly opposing Paul. They're not saying, this is what Paul preaches and it's wrong. 
What they're saying is, this is what Paul meant to say by what he was doing. Sort of like what the Swami did with the words of our Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. You make them mean something else. So it could be by way of teaching. This is what he means. But it also could be uh, in some other way. But basically it's saying, let me clarify what Paul is saying. Or there's been a new revelation added to this that has come from Paul. That, that is consistent with Paul's own beliefs, and so they're represent, representing themselves as being in sync with Paul and in line with the Spirit of God who has revealed this. So they're not saying, we're over here, they're over here, but they're sideswiping the truth as, as I understand the words of our text. Now, look at the possible authoritative sources that are claimed. Paul specifically mentions several options, and that's why I look at this as a sort of broad brush warning because it could come in a variety of ways. One is a revelation of the Spirit. Now, if you remember back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul says, don't don't despise prophetic utterances, but examine those carefully and cling to what is true. So one of the ways that this error could come up is somebody standing in the church claiming to have prophetic gift and authority and saying, this is what God says. Paul says, if it comes this way, it's not that, that no prophetic utterances are valid, but this one's invalid because it violates what has already been taught by Paul. <clears throat> uh, it may be an oral message. And therefore, somebody could say, I talk with Paul, I did this, and I'm just conveying what Paul has said to me. Or it could be a written message, a letter, as he says. It could be a letter you claim to have seen, but but don't present. Or it could be a letter that's a forgery. Now, when you look, I only mentioned a couple of them, but when you look at Paul's epistles, you know, he may say, notice with what large letters I'm writing. Now, I don't think that was the large letter edition for the hard to see. I think that was saying, this is my writing, and you ought to recognize it. Very, very often, most often, Paul validates his, and he'll say, this is by my hand or something, but he authenticates, sort of like the Microsoft seal that's on software. He authenticates his words to say, this is from me. Whatever that letter was, uh, or those letters might be, It was not from Paul. And the false teaching is simply this. The day of the Lord is come. Now, I'm inclined to read that. You can translate that and understand it in a couple of ways. One is that it's come and gone as though it's just past history. It seems to me that the thrust of it is it has now arrived. In other words, we are at the day of the Lord. This is the time that Paul's been writing about that is called the day of the Lord. Now think about that. The day of the Lord, that expression, is found in 1 Thessalonians, only in chapter 5, verse 2, where the day of the Lord is going to come unexpectedly upon those who are unbelievers, and it's going to come expectedly, but not known in terms of the exact hour, by believers. They're waiting for it. But other than that, it's going to ring some other bells. When they think about the day of the Lord, they're going to think about 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. The day of the Lord means 
the dead in Christ are going to be resurrected and they're going to be united with our Lord and with those who were alive at his coming. That comes to their mind. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, that's the section where it says he's going to come as a surprise to unbelievers, but expected by believers who are living in the day. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, where Paul has just been, is saying the day of the Lord will be a day when God will vindicate the righteous and deliver them from the oppression and give them their due reward while it will be a day when the wicked will have demonstrated their worthiness of judgment and, and that judgment comes. So the day of the Lord is a day of salvation for believers. It is a day of judgment for unbelievers. And uh, it was something that was prominent in the minds of the Thessalonian saints. So how could an error like this um, find acceptance in the church at Thessalonica? How, why would this be a, a tempting a kind of error that people might embrace. One, it is a prominent subject in terms of Paul's correspondence with them in chapter 1, not to mention in uh, in 1 Thessalonians and also in 2 Thessalonians. So it's a very important subject to Paul and to the Thessalonians. Now, what has he done with the second coming? He has tied his joy in seeing them presented to Christ in their preparation and readiness and purity. That's his joy and his crown, important to Paul, and and they would delight to to be uh, pleasing to God and to him. It's, It's the key to their sanctification. The goal of sanctification is readiness for the coming of our Lord so that all of the Christian life from the point of entering into it It goes through a sanctification process, and the goal is the return of our Lord Jesus. That's the finish line. Or, of course, for those of us who pass away first, it would be death. But ultimately, the goal is our Lord Jesus. Uh, That's the basis for the Thessalonian saints' hope and for their perseverance. So if you take those three words, faith, hope, and love, the second coming is just tied up in all of that um, and and uh, and also, of course, the judgment of their enemies who have been persecuting them. So here are the Thessalonians who are suffering, I think, in an increasing way. I think it's getting worse and worse for the Thessalonians uh, as they're believing in the Lord Jesus and proclaiming their faith in him. So when you suffer, you are looking a lot more expectantly for the Lord's return than when things are coming up roses. Wouldn't you agree? Uh, those of us, I don't know, it doesn't include any of you, but those of us who are getting a little age, somehow the Lord's return looks a whole lot better than it did to me at 16. Man, 16, I had a lot of things I wanted to do. (laughs) And now here I am, I've done most of those things and I'm ready to move on and graduate. And so it was really important for the Thessalonians. But the last thing would be Paul's absence. Paul is not there to take on those false teachers and immediately take on that false teaching. And so in a sense, they are left to themselves. They are left to the Spirit of God, and they are left to the Word of God. Now, that's not bad. That's what Paul says to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. I commend you to His Word, 
And that is sufficient. But Paul's absence makes them, in a sense, somewhat more vulnerable to the personal appeals that may come. And then the fact that the claim is, this is what God says, or this is what Paul says. The claim to authority uh, is going to cause some people to take it more seriously than they should without examining it first. And uh, the other thing I think I would toss in there is panic. I I more and more come to the conclusion, and I I was looking at Matthew chapter 24, which is just a a prominent text in my mind, where Jesus is telling his disciples who are asking, what's the sign of of all your coming and all these things are going to happen? In Mark's account in chapter 13, he says, don't be frightened. I have to say to you that most of us do not make good decisions in moments of panic. Now, I haven't been in the military, but I think it is true that one of the things that is is taught to soldiers is, here is the way you respond to crises. You don't sit back and say, now let me see, that was page such and such on the manual. You are instinctive in terms of responding to crises. And you're not Think, trying to think through at that moment the reasons why you should or shouldn't do something. That's why you have a clear line of authority, clear line of duty. And it seems to me that these folks, in, in, in a moment of real persecution and difficulty, the tendency is to panic. And especially, as our Lord's describing this, when you have uh, great um, um, a, a natural disaster kind of things that are that are taking place, earthquakes and whatever. That's a time when panic could set in, and I think that's a possibility for them. That's why he talks about being uh, shaken and stirred. I'm sorry for all you James Bond folks. I, I, maybe you're going to miss my pun in there, but I just thought, okay, it's not shaken and stirred and not shaken. It's stirred and shaken in this case uh, because of the of the trauma that, that uh, they're experienced. Now, what does this do? Why is Paul concerned that this error would come into the church and be embraced by the church? What is, what is the effect that, that such a, a teaching would uh, convey? I would suggest to you that one response is, I missed it. Uh, maybe they read left behind. <laughs> Can you imagine reading left behind and all of a sudden somebody says the day of the Lord is here? You know, and you're saying, whoa, I missed it. And now they start thinking about their suffering and they're saying, wait a minute, if the day of the Lord is the time when our Lord is going to come and he's going to vindicate the righteous and save them from their difficulties and he's going to to punish the wicked, then how come in my experience I'm still being punished and the wicked are doing right? The question may be, under those circumstances, am I really saved at all? It can pull the theoretical, the theological rug out from under uh, a believer who thinks that they've missed something that they were waiting for, and yet they're told um, that it's already come. Here's the next possibility, and I think that this really comes to me via Matthew chapter 24. So let's just go there for a second. Matthew chapter 24, and let's start in verse 3. It says, And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, 
the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will be and what this will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age. Jesus answered and said to them, see to it that no one misleads you. So this, this thought about misleading and deception is a prominent thought. And then he goes on to say, for, here's the reason why somebody may get misled. For many will come in my name saying that I am the Christ and will mislead many. And you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you are not frightened for those things must take place, yet it is not yet the end. Now he describes this thing, nation against nation, and whatever, and eventually, of course, you will have the falling away, verse 10. Well, let's look at verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations on account of my name. And at that time, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. So it is in the crisis of the moment that that they are frightened and it is at those moments of panic that people arise and say, I am the Messiah. So you have to ask yourself, why would somebody go around and say, the day of the Lord has already come or the day of the Lord has just come? Well, if you're one of those that wants to be nominated and elected as the Messiah, it's necessary because... You come with the day of the Lord. And there are those, and Jesus makes that very clear, that in those difficult days, there are going to be many messiahs that are going to present themselves. Now, what Jesus goes on to say is this in Matthew 24. He says, look, people are going to say, the messiah's over here, the messiah's back there, off in the woods over here, in the mountains of Montana, here. He says, look, it's like lightning. It's going to come from the east to the west nobody, nobody is going to miss it. Uh, when I lived in the Northwest, I used to salmon fish a little, not, didn't catch many, but tried it. And and you had a dodger that was about this long, a flasher, and, and it would, uh, would attract the salmon, and then there was a herring hanging off the back of it, and hopefully a salmon got tempted and took the herring, and you got him. The problem for me as a young kid was that my pole kept going like this on the end. And I kept thinking to myself, there's one, there's one. He's, he's there. He's working on it. It's just the flasher. And so I'd keep yanking it, reeling it in, looking at the bait, whatever. The reality is when a salmon is on the end of that line, folks, you will know it. You will know it. Nobody's going to mistake a salmon for a dodger. And that's the way it is with the Lord's return. So as I understand this text, people are claiming that the, the, that the day of the Lord has come because they are also claiming that they're the Messiah that's going to deliver you from these difficulties that are associated with it. Now that brings certain, if you think I'm fishing a little bit too much away from the text, I would suggest to you that there are other texts in Scripture which at least buttress what I'm saying. For example, if someone says the day of the Lord has come, your theological mind is going to say, wait a minute, the day of the Lord was supposed to bring certain events with it, including the resurrection of the dead. First, that's four, right? So you say to yourself, wait a minute, where's the resurrection? Isn't it interesting that 
in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul has to deal with those who deny the resurrection. So one way to deal with those who say, wait a minute, you're saying the day of the Lord's here and we don't see any resurrection? Deny it. Some did, and Paul had to deal with that. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 16 through 18, what you see is they say it's already come. So you're saying to those people who say the resurrection's already come, well, my Aunt Frances isn't here. And they're saying, well, it was a spiritual resurrection. It wasn't a literal resurrection. It was a spiritual. They're, they're, they're with us. They're there. So there are ways in which you deal with that. But my point is, these errors that are dealt with in Scripture would go along with a claim that the day of the Lord is here and somehow that the Messiah is here as well. So this thing could be devastating in the spiritual lives of the Thessalonian saints. Here's Paul's correction. Why the day of the Lord has not come. Now you understand, I'm stopping at verse 5 for a lot of practical reasons, one of which is the clock hanging on the wall back there. But he says, one of the reasons why the, we know the day of the Lord has not yet come is because first there must be the rebellion or the apostasy that takes place. Okay, let me just go ahead and say it. I don't think anybody can take the word for apostasy and say that's the word for the rapture. There have been those who strained at it. I would say they were twisting a little bit too much on that. It seems to me, it's very clear in the scripture, apostasy means falling away from what is true and what is right. And it's not a complimentary word, and it certainly isn't the word for, for, uh, for the rapture. So he's saying uh, that the, the apostasy must come first, and you see that in Matthew 24 in those verses we, we read where there will be a significant falling away and it will be a result of all the difficulties that come in the midst of living your life in a persecuting world. And, and so there will be some, their love will grow cold, they'll betray one another, uh, our Lord says, and they will, many will fall away. It's not the same word, but they will fall away and, and, uh, so we need to take uh, that into consideration. Now, I see, uh, the way I look at this, and not everybody agrees with me, maybe most people don't, I see a sequence involved. I see the falling away to take place first and the man of lawlessness then to step in and capitalize on that. Now, I, I have a, a sort of operating premise, and that is, that God gives people what they want. <laughs> Even hell, in one sense, is what they want. They live their lives, people in hell live their lives saying to God, I don't want you in my life. And God gives them that for all eternity and says, there you are, you have it. Now, there are other aspects of it, but in a sense, hell is what people have been asking for. I think that you're going to see in those last days a falling away. And remember when Paul says in, in 2 Timothy that men are going to have itching ears and they're going to draw to themselves people who tell them the right things? I think that our, our civilization is going to be so ripe, by that I mean rotten, it's going to be so rotten that we are crying out for the kind of man the man of sin is. So if it, uh, there's a sense in which I see the man of lawlessness as locked up in a cage like a mad dog. 
and he can't wait to get out and start charging into uh, people. But on the other hand, I see the audience, as it were, that's going, to, uh, that's going to embrace him as looking for exactly that kind of person because it jives, it sinks with their own rebellion and lawlessness. Okay, so I see the, the apostasy coming first, then I see the man of lawlessness coming, capitalizing on that spirit and that rebellion against God, and then uh, exalting himself, if we had time, we could look at those texts, especially Daniel 11.36 in the Septuagint, uh, in the Greek translation, and Ezekiel 28. I would say this. When you look at Ezekiel 28, remember there's those two texts, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, that we talk about the fall of Satan. The man of, of lawlessness is not Satan, but he sure has a lot of his characteristics. That is, he manifests the arrogance the dogmatism, all of the kinds of things that characterize uh, Satan characterize that. Now, we shouldn't be surprised because when we look at the king of Tyre uh, and so on, or the, the king of Babylon in, in Isaiah and in Ezekiel, they're arrogant, they're cruel and whatever. And you see this sort of change of depth of field, like when you're changing focus with your camera, and you start by looking at an arrogant, powerful, dominating human earthly king and you end up looking at the Satan who's behind him uh, who has all those same uh, characteristics. Satan-like but not Satan. I mentioned the temple problem briefly. The question is if he sets himself up in the temple there is no temple today. So you can deal with that in several ways. A, there, there is a kind of abomination of desolation that has already occurred on several occasions throughout Israel's history where the temple has been uh, devastated and where terrible things have happened there. So you could say this is something historic that's been done in the past. You could say that it is uh, literal and it's something that will happen in the future. That means there's got to be a temple built. Or you could say, as I think most are inclined to, not me, that it's not a literal temple that stands for the church and that he exalts himself within the church. I, it's an option, and it fits maybe easily. I just find myself a little bit hard-pressed to buy it. Point C, I told you all this before. I see that as a, as a, as a gentle rebuke. Do you not? What Paul is saying is, look, all the things that I'm now dealing with, these are not new. And in fact, I'll, I'll even, I should rechange that. Did I? I don't know if I, if I changed that in our text or not. Yes. In, in my text, I, I crossed out told and put in was telling. It's an imperfect verb. What he's saying is, I kept telling you this. It's like a mother, you know, who says to a son that's disobedient, I've been telling you this for so long, meaning it's not, it's not something just new to you, it's old. He's been telling them this, so obviously it's not a lack of revelation, it's a lack of remembrance that's the problem. Okay, quickly to the uh, conclusion and application. I believe our world is ripe. I believe our world is ripe for the man of lawlessness. 
I think that we see the spirit of the age, rebellion against authority, rebellion against truth. I mean, look at the way we, we are revising uh, in, in a revisionist way uh, not only Scripture, but the Constitution, whatever it is. It doesn't mean what it plainly says anymore. That's a kind of lawlessness that says we're going by our own rules. We're going whether a Supreme Court says, well, we don't care what the original founders meant by this. We're going to rewrite it in this way. That's lawlessness. It's, it's a spirit of our age, I believe, and I think we are, we are ripe in many ways for it. The purpose of prophecy. This really brings me to, to, to just a reminder for you of what prophecy is about. It isn't about filling in every blank. It isn't about satisfying our curiosity. It isn't about tickling our brains. Prophecy that's fulfilled is an assurance that when God makes a promise, he keeps it. Fulfilled prophecy is great for our faith in God and in his word. It's what we are to expect. Therefore, when difficult times come, if we've read Matthew chapter 24 and we're, and we're listening to prosperity preachers, we got to say to ourselves, folks, I'm going for Matthew 24 and Jesus, not the prosperity preachers. It's going to get tough. So why are we surprised by what's coming? It ought to prepare us for the difficulties. It tells us how to behave. When the scriptures deal with prophecy, it always is in the realm of application. It's never just in the cerebral realm of just file that away in your brain. It's always related to behavior. When you go to the book of Daniel, he deals with some great things out here, but interspersed in between those prophetic revelations are godly living. Prophecy is to inspire us to live in a godly manner. And I think the the last point would be this. If there's anything that's clear to us in prophecy, it ought to be this. God is in control. Is that not true? I mean, I don't understand a whole lot of those details in the book of Revelation, and I don't think anybody that says they do is dealing with a full deck. I don't know what all that stuff means. But I'll tell you one thing. When I get through reading the book of Revelation... I know this, hard times are coming for God's people. God is going to win, and God is in absolute control of history, and I have no doubt about that. If that is true, my friend, then I don't need to panic. And that's what Jesus is saying. Don't lose your head. Don't get frightened and terrified and start bouncing this way and that way. If you have a grasp of prophecy, you know in general terms what is coming and you know who is doing it. And we don't have to panic because our God is there and is in control. Beware of new revelation. That's kind of what was going on, I think. There's that text in Deuteronomy 29, 29. The hidden things belong to the Lord. But those things that are revealed are for us. So quit looking for new things. Acts chapter 17, remember when Paul's at Athens, there are people who just keep looking for new stuff all the time, novelty. No, don't look for new stuff. Remember what God has said. That's what Paul says. That's what Peter says in Second Peter. What can we learn from Thessalonians about prophecy so that we are not deceived? One, we ought to be warned 
that deception is one of the great dangers. Jesus said it. Paul said it. Peter said it. That they're going to twist Paul's words and make of those things that he didn't mean to say. We, need, we know all we need to know. That's the Deuteronomy 29, 29 text. He's told us what we need to know. I was reading one commentator that I, I really respect, but he's whining and moaning about, well, we don't know this and we don't know that, as though, boy, I sure wish we knew that. Hey, friend, God didn't tell us because he didn't want us to know. That's all you need to know. What you focus on is what he did tell us, and that we ought to spend some time on. Try this. Be predisposed toward a literal meaning. Not This is where the, the, the hermeneutics and, and the, the folks all argue. The humor is that, that, that the uh, dispensationals will, will, will plead for, for literalism some places and not others. And, and, and the reform guys, they'll plead for literalism in some places and not others. So nobody that I know of leans consistently toward what's literal. But I'm saying that if you took Paul's words literally in 1 Thessalonians 4, you'd expect a literal resurrection, wouldn't you? Isn't that what he's saying? So don't make it metaphorical into some jazzed up thing that just gets bigger and bigger. Stay, stay, be, be predisposed to literal unless the text forces you. You know, the, the trees clapping their hands, okay, I'm into metaphors. But that's obvious. But when it says, for instance, a thousand years, I'm going for a thousand years. That's what it says. So be predisposed toward a literal uh, interpretation. Don't go beyond the Scriptures. That's what God has given us. There is no revelation beyond that that we need or that is true, if I understand it correctly. And here is my last point. We understand crises via doctrine. Doctrine is the, is the lenses through which we view life, and in particular through which we view crisis. If crisis is the lens through which you view your experience, uh, th then you're going to see everything all messed up. So you have to have doctrine that gives you the perspective of what's going on out there rather than to understand doctrine by the crises you're going through at the moment. We need to be solid in our faith and in the doctrines of Scripture, I believe, if we are to be healthy. Now, all of this has been focused on believers. But understand, as Paul is going to say later in this chapter, there are going to be those who have chosen to disbelieve. And when the hard times come and people may say, well, I'm going to wait until we get close to that end, they're going to be kept from understanding. At some point, their minds are going to be closed in a way that it's too late. So this is the hour to believe and to be saved. I'm going to pray, and I'm also going to include the food that's waiting out there for us. And then when, you, when we're finished, uh, just go down the hall to the potluck. Father, we thank you that you are in control of history, that you are the one who has determined what will be, and we may trust in you completely. Help us not to be shaken by every wind of, of teaching, but rather to be secure in the doctrines that you have given to us. Help us to remember the things that you've said and believe that they are sufficient. Help us to trust in the Lord Jesus and to look anxiously for his return. And for any who don't know him, may they be brought 
to a realization of their sin and the provision of salvation that comes only through the shed blood of Jesus. Thank you for our fellowship together and for the food that's been prepared. We pray that you'd bless our time together as we eat in Jesus' name. Amen.